Uh, last year, I took one of my daughters uh, on a daddy date, and uh, she really wanted to go to Sydney Tower. And so we went into the city, and we went up the tower. And uh, I don't know whether you've been up there, but uh, when you look down, uh, you just see these tiny people that look like ants, just scurrying around in their busyness. And they seem so insignificant. Now, the higher up you go, the more insignificant little human beings seem. What must it look like then for God who created the vastness of this universe to see creatures like you and me who are literally smaller than a little speck of dust floating around in this universe? And yet the astonishing thing in this psalm is that it tells us that God's intention and plan has always been to have these little specks of dust like you and me gloriously rule the world. Isn't that an astonishing thought? To have human beings who are made a little lower than the angels, to be crowned with glory and honour so that they might rule this world in a way that is good and pleasing to God. But friends, there is a problem here, isn't there? For when you look around the world, uh, I'm sure you'll agree with me that this is not what we actually see in our experience of the world. And so secondly, the writer of Hebrews acknowledges that this is not actually what we see happening in the world at the moment. Uh, In the final sentence in verse 8, he says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I mean, in one sense, uh, we can glimpse that humanity sort of does rule the world, can't we? And so, for example, one Christian writer says that, you know, human beings are the ones who organize groups to save the whales. Now, you don't see whales organizing groups to save the humans. (laughs) Uh, There is a sense in which human beings rule the world. It's just that because of our sin and rebellion and ignorance of God, we do such a bad job of it, don't we? We pollute our environment. We do not care for the animals or we care too much for the animals. We cannot rule without having conflict with one another. And in the end, our attempts to rule this world will be frustrated because one day you and I will die. But thirdly, the writer of Hebrews says that actually there is a human being who does rule the world in glory and power and majesty. And Matt was right. His name is Jesus. You can see it there in verse 9. Uh, But we see him, in verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Sorry, I've just lost my place. Namely Jesus, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, do you see what he's saying? He's saying that Jesus is the ultimate human being. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, but now he is crowned with glory and honour 
at God's right hand, ruling not only the world now, but the world to come. You see, Jesus is the one human being who is doing what God had always planned and intended for human beings like you and me to do. But here's the astonishing thing. The only reason why uh, Jesus is seated at God's right hand, ruling now and in the world to come, is because he suffered death, and his death was actually God's great kindness and grace to you and me, because in his death, he tasted death for everyone. In, In other words, it is only by Jesus tasting the death that you and I deserve for our sin and for our rebellion against God, that he is able to save us and bring us to glory. It is because of his death that all those who belong to him will one day ourselves be crowned with glory and honour, ruling the world to come with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, I reckon what God says here has significant implications then for how you and I see the future. For lots of people in this world see the future as about reaching your full potential. Have you heard people speaking in in that sort of language? Uh, My aim in life, in this life, is to reach my full potential, Uh, whether that be in my achievements uh, or whether it be uh, in my my career or sports or in music, my goal in life is to reach my full potential. Uh, Even Christian people may see the future uh, in this way and perhaps even teach our children to think this way. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, There's nothing wrong with improving ourselves uh, as opportunities present themselves. But if this is your idea and my idea uh, of our full potential, then I would suggest that we have a very small view of what our potential really is. For what God says here is that your potential and my potential is that one day we will rule the world with Jesus. But it's not something that we reach for ourselves in this world. Rather, it is something that is given to us in the next. And so the way to live this life is not to invest all our time and energy trying to reach that selective, full potential that we want in our lives. But the way to live this life is to pay careful attention to Jesus and to make sure that we don't drift away from him so that we do, do reach this full potential in the world to come. But friends, uh, we've seen that uh, Jesus is superior to the angels because uh, through his death, uh, he can now take us to glory. But what the writer of Hebrews explains next is why the death of Jesus was so fitting or appropriate to God's plans to bring many sons to glory. Uh, He speaks about how the death of of Jesus fits God's plan. And you can see it there in chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10. He says, Now it was fitting 
that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that is God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Uh, You can see there that Jesus is described as the founder of salvation. Uh, The word literally there is the word for pioneer or trailblazer. Uh, I don't know whether you've heard the names Gregory Blacksland, William Lawson and William Wentworth before. Um, Who knows who they are? Uh, All those who passed um, primary school. Uh, (laughs) uh, who, Who are they? Uh, They were explorers. Uh, They were the famous explorers who first crossed the Blue Mountains. They they were the ones who blazed a trail uh, through the mountains, uh, you know, cutting down all the unforgiving terrain that they found so that people like you and me can easily walk that same trail through the mountains. Uh, It's that kind of word. Jesus is the one who blazed a trail to glory, so that millions of people, uh, people like you and me who trust Jesus, can, can walk that same path to glory. But notice that the writer of Hebrews says that in this goal of bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting or appropriate that God should make Jesus perfect through suffering. Uh, now, that may sound a little bit strange, us, because what does it mean that God made Jesus perfect? I mean, wasn't Jesus perfect already? But um, no. Uh, In the book of Hebrews, the word perfect is actually not talking about moral perfection. Uh, Jesus was always morally perfect. He was always ethically perfect. But Hebrews is talking about vocational perfection. It was through suffering and death that Jesus became the perfect saviour, the perfect one to do the job of saving his people. In other words, friends, in order to save us, Jesus had to identify with us and become one of us and experience human suffering and eventually death. And uh, that's why the writer to the Hebrews is at pains here to show us that Jesus is one of us who stands in solidarity with us as a human being. Uh, In verse 11, he says, For he who sanctifies and those who sanctified all have one source. In other words, Jesus, who makes people holy to be in the presence of a holy God, and those who are made holy by Jesus have the same origin uh, in God the Father so that we are now part of uh, one family with him. And so in verse 12, uh, you see a quote from Psalm 22, uh, which the writer of Hebrews uses to say that Jesus and the congregation of God's people are part of one family. Jesus leads this family here in praising God. But the astonishing thing is that he calls the congregation of God's people, uh, people like us, his brothers and sisters. Uh, In verse 13, you see two quotes from Isaiah chapter 8. 
Again, he uses the word of Isaiah to say that Jesus is the one who trusted in God through suffering, just like Isaiah did, and he is the one who has been given a family of God's children. But the big point here is that Jesus could only bring many sons to glory because he shared in our common humanity when he suffered and he eventually died on the cross. Yes, Jesus was fully God. As we saw last week, he was the exact imprint of God's nature. But you see, it, was only, it is only because he was also fully human, he is fully human, that he can represent humanity at the cross when he died. He could represent humanity as the high priest, who we will see later in verse 17. You can't represent someone if you are not like that person. I mean, our Prime Minister cannot represent us at the United Nations if he was a cow, for example. He has to be a human being in order to represent us. And so Jesus was human in order to represent you and me at the cross. And further, it is only because Jesus was a human being that he could be our substitute at the cross and stand in our place and die for our sins to bring us forgiveness. You can't substitute for someone if you are not like that person. It would be strange, don't you think, to have a football player come off the field and to be substituted by a goat. No, he has to be human. That's why later we see that the blood of animals could never achieve uh, a right relationship with God in the way that Jesus did for us. And so the writer of Hebrews goes on to show the achievement of Jesus' sacrifice for us. You can see it there in verse 14. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, friends, by sharing in our humanity and dying the death that we deserve to die, Jesus accomplishes two things. Uh, firstly, he destroys the devil. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that the devil is now annihilated and ceases to exist. But it does mean that Jesus has destroyed the power of the devil to kill if Jesus has died for you, then because your sins have been paid for completely and your guilt has been removed away, then the devil has no power to accuse you before God and bring you eternal condemnation before the death that will surely come. But secondly, Jesus frees us from the lifelong slavery of the fear of death. If Jesus has died for you, then it means that he will bring you to glory because of his work on the cross so that you need not be afraid of what lies beyond death. It means you can live this life in the secure knowledge that you will rule with Jesus in the life to come. Uh, many of you will remember V. Uh, who was a young lady 
and a much-loved member of our church. Uh, when she first came to our church, uh, she was a young Christian, and uh, I'm sure many of you will know, went through many ups and downs in her Christian life. But a couple of years ago, she was diagnosed with a brain tumour that needed urgent removal. Uh, what we expected to be a routine operation turned out to have major complications. Uh, it resulted in her having significant brain injuries. She was put on life support, but it didn't take long for the doctors to work out there was little hope. And so the life machine was turned off and she went to be with Jesus in glory. Uh, a week before the surgery, I remember chatting with V during morning tea at church. Uh, I don't remember all the details of the conversation, but I do remember V saying to me that she was not afraid anymore. Uh, it's not that she was not anxious about how the operation would go. I mean, all of us would be anxious in that moment, I think. But what she told me was that because of Jesus, she wasn't worried about her future anymore. Whether the operation was a success or not, she knew that Jesus' death had purchased glory for her. She was somebody who was freed from a lifelong slavery to the fear of death, don't you think? Now, friends, are you afraid of death? Are you enslaved by the fear of what might happen to you after your death and my death? You might be a person here this morning and you are so afraid of death that you are desperately living this life trying to hold on to things that you think will last forever. Your achievements, your relationships, your possessions, your reputation. But these things will not last forever, friends. And each day is a day closer to the day that you and I will die. And where will you and I be then? But friends, the wonderful news of the Christian gospel is that in Jesus, we have one who can free us from this lifelong slavery because he has destroyed the power of death itself and he has guaranteed by his death a glorious future beyond the grave. Death is not the natural end of life, as many people say these days. It is God's judgment for your sin and my sin and a prelude to the judgment of God that lies beyond. But the wonderful news of the Christian gospel is that we have one who became one of us. We have one who died in our place. We have one who freed us from eternal death. Uh, now, I know that many of us uh, are trusting in the death of Jesus for us and have been freed from this fear. But if you have never known this freedom, then why don't you... Uh, Put your trust in Jesus' death for you today and live for him as your king and elder brother. 
and let go of the things that you are so desperately trying to cling on to, thinking that life is found in those things. And cling to him who rules forever so that he can take you to everlasting glory. Now, uh, we've seen the fittingness of Jesus' suffering and death in bringing many sons to glory. But in the final part of our passage this morning, uh, what the writer of Hebrews concludes is that, therefore, Jesus is uniquely qualified to help us when we are tempted to drift away from him. He is uniquely qualified to help us when we are tempted to drift away from him. Uh, chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. For it is surely, uh, so for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Uh, now, friends, I used to think that these verses were saying that because Jesus was tempted to not trust in God uh, as he suffered in this world and yet was able to overcome that temptation, well, you know, he is able to sympathize with us as we uh, live in this world and face suffering and trials to ourselves overcome that temptation. He's able to sympathize with us in that sense. Now, uh, that is no doubt true, and uh, the writer of Hebrews will say something similar in a later chapter. But I want you to see that the kind of help that Jesus offers here uh, is a bit different to that, because it has more to do with his work of suffering and death on the cross. Uh, you can see it there in verse 17, where Jesus is described as the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, who made propitiation for the sins of the, peop uh, of the people. Uh, now, the word propitiation is not a, a word that we use very often these days, is it? Um, but it simply means to appease someone's anger. And it's something that we see very commonly in our world. Uh, you know, when you see a husband uh, buying flowers for his wife, uh, he, He's on his way to propitiate uh, the, the wife's anger at him. That's usually why husbands buy flowers, isn't it? Um, the driver at fault in an accident who offers to pay for the damage in order to appease the anger of the other driver. Uh, it, it's that sort of idea. Uh, it's the turning away of anger uh, through a, a gift or a sacrifice. When Jesus died on the cross, he propitiated, he appeased, he turned away God's anger from sinners like you and me and all those who put their trust in him. And so what the writer to the Hebrews is saying here is that it is in knowing that Je what Jesus has done for us. It is knowing the wonderful things that he has done for us on the cross that we will find the greatest help when we are tempted to drift away from him. It is in coming back to the cross and being reminded of all that the Son has done that we will find real help in our times of temptation.
And friends, I wonder whether this is what you and I do when we are struggling as Christians. Is our first impulse to go to uh, Jesus in the Scriptures and be reminded of all that he has done for us on the cross in turning away God's anger from us and giving us the hope of glory? If we find that hard to, to do alone for ourselves, then is it our impulse to ask a friend uh, to read the Bible with us so that we can be reminded of all that Christ has done for us? If you have a Christian friend who is struggling, is your first impulse to go to that person and offer to read the Bible with them and remind them of all that Christ has done for them? You see, it's very easy, I think, simply to try and dig ourselves out of trouble when we are struggling in the Christian life, isn't it? Uh, we, we, we can tend to think that if I just do a little bit here and a little bit there, perhaps we can dig our way out of trouble. But what God says here is to turn our attention to Jesus in, the, uh, in and through the Bible. And to turn our attention to the one who loved you so much that he went to the cross for you. To die the death that you and I deserved in order to turn away God's anger from us and to bring us to eternal glory. And so uh, if you are struggling in your Christian life, uh, if you know you are drifting away from Jesus little by little, then my encouragement to you this morning is to go back to his word. Find help to do that. See Jesus in that word and turn away from living for the temporary things in this world that cannot deliver you from the fear and slavery of death and live for him who rules this world and who will rule the world to come and who graciously invites you and me to come and rule that world with him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. We thank you especially for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him we have a God and Saviour who is not far removed from us, but we have one who entered into this world in frail human flesh, becoming one of us and identifying with us in our pain and suffering. Now we thank you that this Jesus knows our struggles and our temptations, but we thank you that in his death, he died our death and brought us forgiveness and the promise of a glorious future, ruling the world to come with him. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to see just how precious this Jesus is. Uh, help us to cling to him for our salvation. Help us not to drift from him out of neglect, but help us through your word by reminding us uh, constantly of our great high priest who out of love died for us, turning away your righteous anger 
from us and gave us a, a seat at your table and in your family so that we can call you our Father and Jesus, our Lord and our elder brother. For we pray this in Jesus' name.